One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, three women accused of celebrating Hamas by displaying images of paragliders at a pro-Palestine march have been let off with just a conditional discharge. Experts fear a rise in XL bully attacks were known as go on summer holidays because pet insurers are imposing such tough restrictions on housing those hellhounds that kennels are becoming reluctant to look after them. And double child killer Colin Pitchfork has been granted yet another chance at freedom with a fresh parole hearing in the pipeline. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here at Talk TV. We've got a huge show for you tonight at our brand new time of 8pm. Tell all of your friends. And there's a problem with Labour. Just how many anti-Semitic candidates are they running? There's a problem with our borders. Is anyone ever going to patrol them? And there's a problem with our police. What on earth are they actually doing with their time. Plus, we've got James Whale uh, with a tribute to radio legend Steve Wright, uh, who passed away, uh, we were told, just this afternoon. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Turn up the volume. Three women have been found guilty of celebrating the October the 7th Hamas attack by displaying images of paragliders at a pro-Palestinian march in central London. The trio, all aged in their 20s, were convicted of a terror offence in order to pay... £400 in costs. However, one of the offenders won't even have to pay the fine because she's a migrant who isn't entitled to benefits. So is this a green light for anyone who wants to make offensive statements at protests to escape without proper punishment? Joining me now to discuss this, my panel is already here. Deputy Political Editor of The Sun, Ryan Sabe, journalist and broadcaster Edward Wolf, and, of course, uh, barrister and broadcaster Mr Andrew Eborn. Of course. Very good evening to good all evening. of you. Good evening, Mike. Welcome. Uh, and let's kick things off straight away. I mean, how on earth is it right that you could be charged with a terrorist offence, but you just pay a fine, and that's all? It is incredible. Um, under the terms of this conditional discharge, if you don't do anything wrong... Um, within the first year, there, there, there is no punishment. They don't, right. they, don't, they don't come back. So it is at the real low end of the scale. Right. And uh, I've been speaking to MPs uh, this afternoon and there's real sort of anger, anger yeah. about this. At the time, it caused an absolute outrage. Yes. And now... And it was uh, very close to October the 7th, I think. It was, it? It was, it was like the following the Saturday. Weekend. Following yeah. Saturday, yeah. Yeah, it was the following weekend. And it was very clear what they were trying to signify. They were saying that, you know, wasn't it great what Hamas did? Wasn't it brilliant? They had this amazing sort of, you know, flight in from the sky. 
And they tried to say in court, I think, that it was some kind of peace symbol that they had yes, put that, on their, on their Exactly, that, that's what they were Which is absolute cobblers. Yeah. I mean, no wonder people are encouraged to just continue to say whatever they like at these marches, you know? No, yeah, and I think we shouldn't forget the, the feeling. I mean, it, it has faded now a little bit. Not the outrage and not the, mm. you know, not the hurt, but the, but the feeling in those first few the days. The shock. Following the yeah. shock. And, and also just the atrocities that, that took place mm. on October the 7th. Yeah. And yes, we all know what those symbols of, of you know, paragliders yeah. absolutely was meant to indicate. Mm. Yeah. And, and absolutely, and just to make it clear, it is an offence under the Terrorism Act to, to, as it says, wear clothing or carry a display of articles in public in such ways or circumstances as to arouse reasonable suspicion that the individual is a member or supporter of a prescribed right. organisation. So they had these, these images, mm. it seemed clear, but obviously the court looked at it and what the judge said in that particular case, um, they were sort of turning around and saying, well, it's not, not as serious as it could be in those situations. They're still convicted. It's still a criminal offence. Yeah. But a conditional discharge, as you say, it means that if something happens, uh, basically, again, then right. they will get convicted and sentenced. But that's the same as any other kind of suspended sentence scenario, isn't it? I mean, surely terrorism should be a different category. I mean, if you're going to be charged with a terrorism offence and convicted, then it's, there should be the equivalent of a sex offenders register that you go on to as a terrorist, don't you? You would have thought so. And I think the other interesting thing... I mean, what is... if I'm sitting next to one of these people on the bus? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think know, the other I'm on a bus very often. I think, but, you know. I think <laughs> the other thing worth mentioning is the fact that under the unduly lenient sentencing yeah. scheme, you can, normally, you can go to the Attorney General and she can recommend yeah. that this is looked at again. That only happens in the Crown Court, whereas this was in uh, the Magistrate's yeah, Court, so, yeah. so, it can't be, so it can't be looked at mm. again. So... I'm not, so, I mean, I so suppose they've, been, they've got the, a conviction of sorts, but it, you know, it's at the lower end. Yeah, I know. And I mean, I suppose you know, to, to give the police some credit for once, because we don't always do it. This is probably why they don't arrest very many people, because they know that the outcome is probably going to be this, yeah. and there's not much point in going it, through it, all that. It does hard work. depend on the evidence. I mean, the maximum penalty un, under under the act is 14 years in prison or, or a fine, and, but in the in the in the lower courts, it's uh, six months in prison or five thousand pounds. It does depend on the evidence. And the problem when we report, but what, I mean, what media, evidence do they need? They were wearing exactly. these these symbols, I th and I think this kind of outcome really will give people. You know, often these don't have much effect, but this will really give people on those marches who want to be offensive, who yeah. want to carry banners, who want to chant. You know, know, really, really mm. um, absolutely terrorist slogans, they, they'll realise they can do what yeah. they want. Well, we've seen it, we're going to be impunity. talking about... Yeah, I mean, we've seen it, and we, uh, we're going to be talking about it later on, um, the business at the Soho Theatre, where, um, you know, a comedian, so-called, pro-Palestinian comedian, yes. who yeah. thinks it's OK to berate two members of his audience who happen to be Jewish... Yeah. Um, and basically, you know, swear at them, intimidate them, get the whole crowd chanting at them. Yeah. You know, this is now considered to be acceptable uh, behaviour. And it was appalling. I saw that. I saw the clip on yeah. Twitter as well, where he was basically on the march mm. and basically yeah. piling people up on that sort of basis. So it is important. Interesting, I say, just going back to the facts, which, which is important, mm. they said when delivering the verdict, what they made it clear is there's no evidence in, in the thing that, that any of the defendants were supporters of Hamas or were seeking to show support for them. So that's what the court see, found. that's ridiculous. I, but, but that's what they're saying they found. So, as a result of it, that's why they got the lenient sentence. But you're right, looking at the evidence that we've seen, it seemed fairly clear. Well, I mean, if you're wearing a depiction of something that happened as part of a terrorist atrocity, yes. it's pretty clear why you're doing it, isn't it? And that's why the, 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 the Crown prosecution felt there was... Well, Mickey there was... Mouse running the court system. Yeah. You know, oh, there's no evidence. I don't know what that means. It's a picture of a parachute. Well, Which maybe is why the message is clear. Basically. You can act with impunity. You can say yeah. and do what you want in this country. Yeah. Unless, if you're on the course, right side. Unless, of course, you want to start, you know, spouting from the Bible or something, in which case you get asked to move along. In which case, you know. yeah. I mean, it is just... I find it staggering that yeah. the more um, 
the, the, the judiciary in this country gets involved in these kinds of, you know, fairly high-profile yeah. cases, because yeah. it is a high-profile case, because yeah. normally speaking, magistrate's court, nobody cares, but this is quite an important case. Oh, very important. And they just keep getting it wrong, don't they? And you hear all these cases about soft justice o over the years, whatever the case may well be, and this sort of feels like it... Even though they've, like, the magistrate will have looked at the evidence, looked mm. at everything, it feels like it sort of fits in that yeah. category a little bit. And what about the other business? One of them um, is a migrant. I don't know whether that's a legal migrant or an illegal migrant. Yeah. Not allowed to work, presumably. Not allowed to get benefits. I mean, I don't know quite how that works because illegal migrants... You would have thought come... she would have been on her best behaviour. Well, illegal migrants who come here get some form of benefit, so... I think I'm not quite what, sure what they mean. I think one of the questions is that it does raise that if they were granted asylum at any stage, you wonder whether the Home Secretary or the government can actually intervene and, and revoke that. Well, they uh, won't, though, because this is the same problem we had with the chemical attacker, isn't it? Mm. Um, that guy Zidi, because he was not sent to prison. And you only get deported if you go to prison for more than a year. So if you get a suspended sentence, you don't have to worry about but it. But he should have been deported the minute that the first asylum claim was turned down. He should have been, of course. But, I mean, that's what we know now is a, as a broken system. But, but at least you'd hope that the judiciary would catch it. No, absolutely. And they always say that trust comes in on foot but leads on horseback. And yeah. that trust is an all-time low, both in the media, mm. in terms of the judiciary and various other things. And this is why they introduced this sort of uh, filming, if you like, televising of sentencing. Yeah. So they could unpack and explain to the audience a bit more more as to why it's happened. This case is, on the face of it, is appalling. Yeah. And you need to sort of turn around and say, look, why have they reached this decision? Mm. What they they sided actually with them and said, actually, we don't believe you're your supporters of mass. Right. Um, so that's the reason Incredible. it's so lenient. Which, which looking at that, as you say, it's outrageous on, on, on it's the evidence. It's absolutely ridiculous. Seen, it doesn't make sense. And you wonder whether they should extend the televised screenings uh, of uh, absolutely. So instead of just the sentencing, which is which is great for the transparency, yeah. whether maybe to extend them if, if it's a short case, maybe to start with magistrates. And, uh, and, and, you know, yeah, them. I mean, one of the great shows I used to watch when I lived in America um, was Court TV. Oh, they yes. actually started Brilliant. an entire channel and you could watch all sorts of amazing cases yeah. from the sublime to the ridiculous all day, yeah. every day, sort of 24-7. It was it, fascinating. It, it got That's being a how barrister. you reach That's the kind of intellect that you have uh, That you must have be what it is, it, yeah. It was, we that used to have Crown Court. Do you remember Crown, Crown Court, Court oh, yeah. in this country? Yeah. Yeah. I used to love that one mm. as a baby barrister. You oh, yeah, sort of really, 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 really fun. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of migration, uh, the entire fleet of Border Force cutters and patrol boats have been entirely withdrawn yeah. from Probably. tackling migrants in the Channel. Great. So now um, we haven't even got any boats in Border Force, and that's where everybody's From coming border in. Border Force to Border Fast. I mean, yeah, that's, exactly. that's your work on that. Very good. But you, I think you were here all week. Uh, what you need to look at, however, is the reality. We were discussing this a little bit earlier about these vessels. And apparently, it's not such a big story, you were saying. Well, that's, well, what I was saying that the, the border. Well, it's force easy for you to say. No, no, no it's happening. You know, there's another 4,000 <laughs> coming this weekend again. There's no boats. I, I, th I, think one, I think one of the issues is the border force have actually. They're not, they're those cutters are not being used. But what they yes. are doing, they've got five or so other ones. So yes. there is a different. They're just thinking about it differently. And maybe that the border force cutters can't God, actually. God, it's always pick like you up. work for the Home Office. Know, just thinking about it differently. This is why he's here. He's got I, all I, the details. I, I, I thinking about it creatively. Yeah. Yeah. But it says confusingly here, it says they're now left to be using a fleet of private vessels. Yes. Normally used for servicing wind farms. I mean, a great huh? headline, isn't it? it? it it's no, nonsense. no, but let's be... It may be that the actual cutters are not the ones to get in amongst the small boats no. and pull people out of water and things. So it just may be that they're not fit for purpose. The real but, test... The well, real why would the border force have boats are, that are not so, fit yeah. for purpose yeah. for the border force? Yeah. Well, the nonsense. home office... I mean, <laughs> maybe if they're used for things like trying to intercept smuggling gas... It's, I mean, I'm not talking about right. migrants, but in terms of, you know, drug busts, right. that kind of thing. That's what they're re sort of really mm. good for. Whereas these smaller vessels... 
Um, they've been trying to phase the, the border force. Um, so who's got these cutters then? Can you go and buy one? Well, they, well, no, they've fallen you know, into... No, they've fallen, a border force cutter at the they've weekend. fallen into disrepair. Most uh, of them haven't been serviced. So, yeah, they are effectively out of service. So it's how you spin the story, though, isn't it? it if is. the story is these are more effective, we've got more people and we're stopping the boats coming but over... But except they're results. not It's more costing effective. the taxpayer £36 yeah. million. The, pounds. Yeah, the real... The real, the real well, then, and also they're not stopping the boats. So, there we go. So that's, that's why the real it's a bad answers, idea. So it doesn't matter if we're on dinghies or border force... Canoes, yeah. or cruise ships you know. not stopping the boats. What we really need to do is speak to France more and actually yeah. get our... We've done all our, that. No, our, We've we already given them a load of money. We Loads to, of money we've thrown over the channel. Back on the phone to Macron and say, we, did, we need to patrol the beaches, we need to send our own people over there yeah. to actually make sure these people don't get beyond... Do you remember they used the to have those, um, you know, sort of, you know, X's with, with barbed wire on the yes, beaches in Normandy, you know, to stop the, the British yeah. from landing? Maybe we could do those but turn them around the other way so that you can't leave. It's a good idea. What do you think of that? What yeah. I love is the people that say, well, how do these huge inflatable dinghies get through Europe? How do they get yeah. through the French border? It's true, isn't it? How, well, how are they carrying well, this? Where are they coming from? Yes. Mike's barbed well, wire would stop I mean, it because they'd get punctured. Well, they? They well I mean, that would be one way to do it. But, I mean, I've, I've seen and spoken to people who have been over there doing investigations. And yes. apparently they are coming in from China via Turkey. That's where they man manufactured. Yeah. Um, and they're basically driven there. You know, inflated uh, and on the backs of lorries, and and they've they've seen lorries. I mean, there is lorries. quite a lot of indications. Yeah, yeah. People are people traffickers long before they yeah. get to Calais. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, you absolutely, absolutely go up the train. You've, you've got to target the people traffickers. They're mm. the real ones. Yeah. And, and yeah. Work on that sort of thing. And every now and again, they do get one or two of them. Yeah. But there's so we many. Don't, of them. We don't hear enough about that no. though, and and ways that we can stop that. That's more effective. Yeah. Exactly David Cameron right. had a good plan. I'm sure you'd have liked Mike. Was when he said spend all the money in the the, the their home country. So yes. more foreign aid. <laughs> Exactly right. Places. I mean, it's just that we end up paying for everything. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Up next, the woes for Labour as their Rochdale by-election candidate is withdrawn over anti-Semitism. But it looks like he might still win the seat. And there's another one as well. Hold fire. See you after the break. Welcome back to the Independent Republic. Last night we brought you the story of the Labour MP spouting anti-Semitic hate. Well, it's happened again tonight. Graham Jones has become the second Labour parliamentary candidate to be suspended over comments made about Israel in a private meeting of Labour activists in Lancashire. Jones follows Azir Ali, who Labour withdrew their support for over questionable comments too. The suspension is damaging for leader Keir Starmer, who's running on a platform of ridding his party of anti-Semitism. Oh, really? Well, joining me now in the studio is the Henry Jackson Society's Director of Communications, Megan Gittos. Megan, uh, welcome back to the show. Nice to see you again. Um, hard to believe this. I mean, my first sort of thought and my first question really is how many more of these people are there? Because Keir Starmer claims to have changed the party, but he clearly hasn't. I think there is a culture in uh, Labour um, where people were saying during the Corbyn years that they felt scared to speak out. Yeah. Um, a lot of these comments and videos, they're coming from grassroots mm. Labour right. um, associations, so I think there will be a lot more. There will. People will feel bravened now that a few have come out, right. that they can share that clip that they had on their phone mm. that they didn't really know what to do with. And they should feel, like, ready to do that, because actually this is, like... We always say the fish rots from the head, yeah. but I don't think... I think it rots from the bottom. I, if for what it's worth, I do think Keir Starmer's done an admirable job, mm. lost a lot of friends, has risked losing votes from his own party. Yeah. It's not enough. No. It's not enough. And also, you can't really rid 
someone of anti-Semitism if they're anti-Semitic, I'm afraid. You know, you either yeah. are or you're not. You know, the idea that Azhar Ali kind of said at the beginning, oh, yes, uh, it was a terrible mistake. I got something completely wrong. I was misled by a conspiracy theory that I now know not to be true. And you know in your absolute heart of hearts that this is a guy who believes all that stuff. He believes it. And there's absolutely no way being um, told to put out a press release stopped him believing it. Right. And this is part of the problem. Did Labour see that it was close to the by-election and think it's bad what he said, but we're too close mm. to pull him out, in which case that's abhorrent, or did they genuinely believe he'd changed? And if that's the case, then they have absolutely no idea what anti-Semitism in modern Britain looks like. Yeah. It looks like the recycling of these old Hitler Germany... Mm. It's conspiracy like the sort of tropes, theories. The cartoons, they believe all them. of that stuff. They believe them, yeah. and that's the problem. When he goes, he'll go out on TV and he'll say anti-Semitism, racism in any form is wrong. Mm. But they don't think they're being racist. No, they think they are genuinely talking about the history. Well, it's like of when um, you see people. Uh, interviewed when Piers Morgan was interviewing a lot of the, the, the people who were on the side of Palestinian um, freedom and sometimes borderline on the side of Hamas. You know, they believe it's all Israel's fault. They, they believe, believe that, uh, you know, Hamas is a freedom-fighting organisation and I'm afraid that in some portions of the Labour Party sort of backwards, that's what they believe. Let's have a look at what Keir Starmer actually said. This is before uh, the latest Graham Jones revelation, but this is what he said about Azir Ali. Certain information came to light over the weekend in relation to the candidate. There was a fulsome apology. Further information came to light yesterday calling for decisive action. So I took decisive action. It is a huge thing to withdraw support for a Labour candidate during the course of a by-election. It's a tough decision, a necessary decision. But when I say the Labour Party has changed under my leadership, I mean it. Uh, yeah, and so now uh, I'm afraid the former Labour MP for Hindburn, Graham Jones, who is seeking re-election to that constituency, has been caught on audio basically saying, uh, F Israel. Um, and he's saying British Jews fighting for Israel should be locked up. That's basically his line. And so for Keir Starmer to say that he took decisive action is, one, untrue, because the inference of what he's saying there is that what they found out about Azir Ali over the weekend wasn't bad enough to suspend him. Effectively. Yeah, it's not decisive action, I'm afraid. Um, a little bit of context. Greater Manchester Police, after October 7th, mm. said that anti-Semitic... Um, they disclosed that anti-Semitic, um, not attacks, but incidents, yeah. were... They went up by five times the amount from exactly the same period right. last year. Mm. And Rochdale was going to be a contentious one for yes. them. I... Honestly, the cynic in me thinks that it just wasn't bad enough, mm. what was said. And yeah. I have no basis for that other than it fits a pattern. Well, I think you'd have to conclude, would you not, that knowing what we know about Rochdale, that it has a very large Muslim population, uh, mm -hmm. George Galloway's gone there for a reason. You know, he mm -hmm. knows basically yeah. that he can attract He knows a vote. how to capitalise on it. Yeah, of course. And I think they realise that, uh, you know, if they pulled this guy that would be the end of Labour in Rochdale. And I wonder... Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's some people who say he might still win the election. I'm not sure if that's true. Um, but if he doesn't win the election, and George Galloway does, you wonder whether that's Rochdale lost to Labour for some time. I think it would be Rochdale lost to Labour for some time. And, you know, we all did a collective gasp when we heard about the comments at the meeting with um, Jones. But these... A widespread held views. The idea that people are saying it's, it might seem shocking to some, the idea that people are saying people should go to prison for um, going out to fight for the IDF. Yeah. 
not knowing that that is a law that any recognised legitimate military, if you're a dual mm. national, you can do. Right. People were comparing they're, they're it online comparing, to ISIS. Yeah, they're comparing it to Shemima Begum. They're it's, comparing it to, to sort of death so cults. I think the problem is Labour is quite cosmopolitan, mm. very North London elite, um, and... I don't think they truly understand anti-Semitism no. in this country. That's the problem. Yeah. And, and that's always been the problem, yeah, hasn't it? Because Jeremy Corbyn had the same it. problem. Yeah. You know, he's still out there every single day banging the drum for, you know, getting um, the IDF to pull out of Gaza. But he very rarely mentions the hostages. And again, he was in this very studio. He cannot, um, yeah. And he cannot bring himself to condemn Hamas. And people say he's a man of principle. I have to agree. They might not be very nice principles, but it's. If, I think when someone shows you who they are, believe mm. them. Yeah, absolutely right. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, and neither would you, I'm sure, if more of these people are somehow now outed. Because also, let's face it, it was only on Sunday that Lisa Nandy was up there, you know, campaigning with, uh, with Ali, as was Angela Rayner. Um, you know, they wheeled out Labour MP Pat McFadden on Sunday morning to basically say, well, the apology was enough, so let's move on. You know, I mean, they've got this all wrong. They've really messed Some, it up. Sometimes, and I understand the historical context of the word, but, and why it's important to Jewish um, citizens of this country, but sometimes I just want to mm. remove the word anti-Semitism. Yeah. I feel like people think they get away with it. But it's not you know, racism, it's something else. Every ethnic minority in this country will say, you have no right to tell me what is racist. Mm. I get to tell you that. Mm. And you know what, in part, I actually agree with that. Apart from, it seems when it's Jewish people mm. doing that, people say, oh, no, it's not anti-Semitic, no. it's just hating Israel. And it's kind of like, sometimes the mask does slip a bit and people yeah. accidentally say the word Jew instead of Israel. And this whole situation can be avoided if Keir Starmer actually does what he says mm. and makes decisive actions. He should have just said no straight away. Yeah. He should have told the man yeah. he couldn't stand. How did they not think that what he said was bad enough? I know. And he got his friend front bench to go out and... Like, defend him. Yeah. They all look like idiots. Like, mm. what is it worth? Rochdale, for the Labour Party, with the polls the way they are, is not that important. No. It really is a dreadful, dreadful mess. Megan, thank you very much indeed. Let me just give you uh, all of the candidates in that Rochdale by-election. Azir Ali, of course, was Labour, now independent. Mark Coleman is independent. Simon Danchuk uh, for Reform UK. Ian Donaldson, Liberal Democrat. Paul Ellison, Conservative. George Galloway from the Workers' Party of Britain. Michael Howarth, independent. William Howarth, independent. Guy Otten from the Green Party. Raven Rodent Subortner from the official Monster Raving Looney Party. And David Tully, Independent. We're taking over the telly. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Next up, we look at the scourge of the XL bully dogs as kennels are refusing to take them. It's the dog's proverbial. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Renowned BBC DJ Steve Wright has tragically died at the age of 69. Announcing the news in the last few moments, his family said, it is with deep sorrow and profound regret that we announce the passing of our beloved Steve Wright as we all grieve the family request privacy at this immensely difficult time. Steve Wright will be best remembered for presenting BBC Radio 1 and Radio 2 for more than four decades, as well as fronting TV shows, including Top of the Pops. Let's take a listen. Steve Wright in the afternoon. Stereo. Stereo. Radio 1.
Bank Holiday Monday afternoon. This is Steve Wright in the afternoon. The loving spoonful summer in the city coming round to two minutes past three. FM 88 to 91 megahertz stereo. AM 275285 medium wave. BBC Radio 1. That is just that sound, isn't it? You know the sound. One man who knew Steve very well, of course, Talk TV presenter and Talk TV legend, Mr James Whale, who joins me now. James, um, very good evening to you. Nice to see you. Hi, Mike. Yeah, so, I mean, you hear those... Uh, jingles, you hear those words, you hear that voice. It's pretty much familiar yep. to everybody, really, isn't it? Well, I think Steve probably had one of the most recognisable voices on radio. Uh, Steve and I kind of started out on commercial radio at the same time. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a bit of a husky voice today. Uh, and um, he, he was just a nice bloke. He was quite... quite um, self-sufficient mm. shall we say he didn't he didn't sort of hang out at showbiz dues much and stuff like that right. he actually was completely addicted to radio radio was his craft radio was uh, what he was really good at yeah. and i suppose as he made the zoo format where you include everybody uh, on the show i do it just because i can't afford guests um <laughs> and he made he made the zoo format, which was always popular, still is popular uh, in London, um, the biggest thing in this country in radio at that time. Yeah. And I've had a couple of people say they remember some of the characters, like Mr Angry, Steve Wright in the <laughs> afternoon. That was all part of the, of the show, wasn't it? Yeah, not based on me, by the way. I hope um, not. I, I appeared on his show quite a few times, and uh, he used to spend an enormous amount of time... Uh, actually uh, recording bits, rehearsing bits with the rest of the team yeah. um, so that he could drop them in during the show. He was a, an absolute professional. Yes, I've been hearing that he would be in the studio at sort of 10 in the morning for a show yeah. at 2. I mean, you and I just rock up about five minutes before uh, and Don't go with it. Don't tell everybody that. <laughs> But, I mean, what a character, and terribly sad for his family, of course. But, yeah. but, I mean, also it should be mentioned that, you know, he's one of those that the BBC kind of cast adrift in uh, a, a very, very nasty and not very pleasant way. Yeah, no, the BBC management have a habit of doing that. And, um, and a lot of people in radio think that if they say we're not going to employ you anymore, which none of us have the right to a job, as Steve used to say, you're only as good as the last show you've done. Mm. Um, but very often they won't allow you to go on and say, well, I've had a great time, this is my last show. You, uh, you often turn up to the studios and there are a couple of people there saying, well, I'm sorry, uh, you did your last show yesterday. And yes. uh, I think after the amount of years Steve spent with the BBC um, until he came back on Radio 2, I think they treated him quite shoddily, to yes. be honest. No, I think that's right. Because he was an institution, as many people were at the, at the BBC who are no longer there, um, and it, and it seems sh a shame. But is that kind of radio sort of still doable, if you like? I mean, does anybody do what Steve Wright did now? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there are, um, there are people who try to do it who can't do it very well. Uh, you've got to have a relationship with the people that you have on your programme. Mm. I think Chris still does it well, um, Moyles, and uh, uh, I think, you know, I think there are a few people, but radio celebrities and radio stars 
are, are not as much sought after anymore because everybody thinks radio's finished. Well, radio isn't finished. Right. Uh, radio stations like Talk and uh, Talk Sport are proving that with yeah. their ratings. You know, um, I, I think there's room for personalities in radio. And then if you get asked later in life to do TV, as uh, a lot of people are, you can do that. But I wouldn't want to do it without doing my radio. And, and Steve was the same. But one other thing I want to tell you about him, when I first was diagnosed with cancer 20-odd years ago, mm. while I was in hospital and for the sort of six months a year afterwards, he would ring every couple of weeks and just say, hi, Stevie here, how are you doing? And I'd say, yeah, I'm all right, I'm okay, Mum. Great, great, that's all I wanted to know, thanks, bye. Brilliant, brilliant. And that was the extent of the conversation, but yeah. he, was, uh, he, he was a really nice bloke. Yeah. I was shocked to hear that today, yeah. to be honest with you. No, I, think, I think a lot of people were, because he was, he was working at the weekend, so obviously a shock to, to, to everyone indeed. Well, James, listen, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Appreciate it, as ever. James Whale, ladies and gentlemen, back at, here at the weekend, of course, on Talk TV. Um, we've got much more to do, because moving on, experts fear a rise in XL bully attacks this summer after kennels have had to stop taking them in during owners' holidays. More family members could face being attacked by XL bully dogs after the government's new rules resulted in insurers now imposing tough restrictions on kennels, making it unviable for many kennel owners and daycare centres to look after them. Joining me now uh, is the owner of Basseleg Walking Field, Rebecca Harris, who we've spoken to before, and the owner of Pauls and Paths, Rachel Godber, who is offering her grooming services free to XL bully owners. Well, I mean, welcome to both of you. Um, it's quite, yeah. uh, quite a saga this is turning into, isn't it, with the old XL bullies? I mean, I find myself uh, wanting to ask you both a few questions. And, Rachel, let me start with you. Are you sure um, that grooming XL bully dogs is something you want to do? I mean, most people seem to be a bit wary of them. So my services are, um, on the grooming side, I do um, nail trimming. Um, oh. And then I also offer... Um, pet care services, dog walking, right. um, and those kind of services as well. Right. Um, do you do teeth cleaning? And then when I thought... Do you do teeth Sorry. cleaning? Yes, yep, yeah, do teeth cleaning. So you would actually open, a, you would open an XL bully dog's mouth yeah. and clean its teeth? Yeah, like. absolutely. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That's extraordinary. And, I mean, do you worry, though, that some of those dogs... Because I know the arguments, and, and both of you will probably make them, that, you know, it's the owners, not the dogs. But, you know, there might be some dogs that you have to see or to groom who might be, you know, not quite as nice as, as you'd hope. There is, of course, some, yeah. Um, I'd say that goes with any breed, though. Um, there's certainly a lot of breeds that... Um, I do have problems with um, for various different reasons, whether I'm walking them, caring for them, um, cleaning their teeth or clipping their claws. Um, any breed can be a risk. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, listen, I take my hat off to you because, I mean, rather you than me, to be honest. <laughs> but, but um, uh, Rebecca, let me come to you because the last time you and I spoke, I think you had sort of offered your field so that people could bring the dogs there to have a bit of a run around. How's that all going? Yes, that's going uh, going very well. Um, no incidents, friendly bullies, polite owners. Yeah. Um, yeah, no problems at all. And what do you make of the new restrictions that are being put on some people and some kennels by the insurance companies? Because they're making it very, very expensive, I guess, for the kennels to get insurance for XL bullies, which means they can't really look after them. 
Well, this is a problem. Um, I did a bit of research uh, today and I found uh, one kennels in my area, um, uh, Home and Away Kennels near Newport, and right. they actually have got some specific um, glass-fronted large kennels that they are going to take XL bullies in. Mm. Um, they said they've got glass fronts so they can read the dog's body language better. Right. Um, but they say they do a meet and greet first and then they assess the dog rather than the breed. Um, right. But they're quite happy, licensed and insured to do it. But a lot of places, when I asked them today, uh, are you willing to take XL bullies? Most of them said, no, absolutely not. It just really? doesn't seem to be viable or um, they have to walk them in a solo manner rather yes. than take two or three together. Well, I was going to say, I mean, there might be some dog owners who would say, well, listen, if you're going to have XL bully dogs here, I don't want to board my dog with you. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there are some people that might think that. But all these licensed premises, you know, they, they are very experienced people. Mm. They are obviously insured. Um, and this one particular kennel, the home and away that I, I spoke to, um, they actually have got a designated area. So... Um, I think perhaps the kennels that are able to do that can reassure other owners that they're not going to be uh, having their little fluffy dog right next to a big, scary-looking dog, <laughs> although most of these dogs are really quite friendly. Yes. And, Rachel, do you, do you find that when, when you're doing, like, free grooming for these XL bullies, do you find mm -hmm. that you have to do that without any other dogs around, or how, how does that work? Um, so a lot of them at the minute, a lot of the work I do is without other dogs being around. Um, so I tend to work on a one-to-one -one basis anyway, and that goes with any breed that I'm doing anything with. Yeah. Um, so that I've got more time to understand the dog, um, better could communicate with the dog, you know, understand its body language, like Rebecca was just saying with the yeah. glass winter kennels. Um, so it's pr it pretty much goes that, if I'm with an XL bully, I'm dealing with the XL bully, but it's the same as if I'm dealing with a Labrador. Mm. I'll do just that Labrador or, you know, whatever other breed yeah. I'm dealing with, big or small. And as far as, like, the muzzle-wearing rule goes, do they have to wear a muzzle until the moment you actually start looking into their mouth or something? Um, so they would wear a muzzle if they're... say when they are obviously in the car, they have to wear a muzzle. Yeah. And generally in car parks, they would wear a muzzle, mm. um, that being the public areas. Um, but once they're on private land, um, they don't have to wear the muzzle, so they can have the muzzle off. Um, sometimes doing teeth, we do have to muzzle dogs anyway. Um, I've not had an XL bully that um, I'm having to do anything like that with at the moment. Mm. Um, and the same with claw trimming as well. Yeah. Um, I've got chihuahuas and spaniels that have to be muzzled to have their claws trimmed. The XL bullies that I do so far have been no problem whatsoever right. in terms of... And have you got quite a few well. customers coming to you for the free grooming then? I have, yes. Yeah, yeah. From right. not just my local area as well. I have actually had people from further afield reach out to me as well. Yeah. Um, you know, concerned that people in their area aren't helping them and they've seen me um, and my adverts on Facebook and they've contacted me. So I am actually starting to travel a little bit further to help mm. them further afield as well. Oh, well, that's good. And um, Rebecca, what about your business? Is, 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 do they muzzle the dogs in your field or, or is that not necessary? 
Uh, no, it's not necessary. They they muzzle them in their cars, and if they want to use the dog wash or park in the main car park, mm. they need to muzzle them there. And most of them park within the vicinity of the field. There's a gate behind them, and they don't need yeah. to. And um, you were quite confident that loads of people were coming. Is that still kind of number going up every week? Yes, yeah, and of all dogs, not just XL bullies. Um, and some of my other customers are... Uh, being really respectful and kind and nice to the XL bully customers, which is what we all want. Yeah. And as far as the muzzle wearing of the dogs, does that, does, does that affect their, their behaviour? Does it affect their mood at all? Absolutely. They hate it. When they have to put the muzzle back on to go in the car, the dogs are pouring at their faces. I mean, these dogs are accepting, but you can just see that they go into... Uh, a very much more subdued mode and mm. they're, they're not comfortable and happy, but they, they, they're used to it now. Right. But isn't there a risk then that by wearing the muzzle that when you take it off, they might get a bit sort of rambunctious and a bit carried away? Uh, they get rambunctious and carried away because they're happy to be out and free in the <laughs> field. Once they've got a frisbee or a ball in their mouth or a stick, they're having so much fun. They're, they're, not, uh, they're not at all crabby about having the muzzle right. put back on. They just cower a bit and they, they, they just don't like it. No. And, Rachel, just finally to you, I mean, do you think this is a bad idea, this whole new law for, for XL bullies? And what would you do instead? Um, I think more so we need to be looking at, and it's, again, going on to the argument of the fact that it's the owners and not the dogs. Um, I think there does need to be registration and things like that around owning dogs so that not anybody can just own a dog. Um, I think targeting a specific breed is a bad idea. Um, but in terms of dog ownership altogether, then I do believe that there should be um, certain restrictions on that, yeah. Yeah, OK. Well, good luck, both of you. Uh, Rachel Godberg, dog groomer, offering free services uh, to XL bullies. And Rebecca Harris, thank you very much indeed uh, to both of you. Good luck with it all. Uh, we're smashing it out of the park, as usual, of course. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, we're going to be asking just how pathetic the parole boards are in our country and whether policemen are still allowed to have a sense of humour. Join us then. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for Taking the Mic. The police are never very far from the spotlight on The Independent Republic, sometimes for good reasons, but unfortunately more often for bad ones. Today's lesson in policing comes from Bethnal Green East, a section in the east end of London looked after by the Metropolitan Police. It may come as no surprise to you that levels of crime in the area have now broken new records in recent months with violence and sexual offences as high as they have ever been. Looking at this graphic of how the police are dealing with the crime wave, you can see where the problem is. Just around two-thirds of the crimes have been completed without a suspect identified. That's the light blue colour on the right. The orange section covering just one quarter of the offence is covered by other whatever that means. All in all, it looks like the good people of Bethel Green are not particularly well served by their police officers. Not many suspects are being identified and not many crimes are being punished. So far, so bad. But what could be the reason? Are the individual police officers busy doing other things? Catching people driving at over 20 miles per hour? 
preventing gospel preachers from spreading the word of the Lord, threatening people on social media with arrest if they tweet about trans women. I can reveal to you at least part of the reason for their incredible lack of success in solving crimes is because it seems that there's a wag in the force. And I don't mean uh, a footballer's wife. The wag in question put up a joke poster in the police station toilet, making fun of what is obviously one of the management's pet projects. The pet project in question? You guessed it. It's the community safety unit which deals with hate crime. Under the heading, Fancy a New Challenge, and featuring a cartoon of a donkey, the poster invited applicants to join if they wanted to work long hours and see their careers stall. It added, with us, you could learn how to NFA, which actually means take no further action against the suspect, with your eyes closed. Now, as you might expect, the management didn't see the funny side of it at all. They have removed the offending poster and are now conducting an investigation to find the culprits. Even the Met's Directorate of Professional Standards has been called in. But what are the chances of them catching uh, the criminal? Judging by their record, it will be another NFA. And you know what that stands for. It's a real crime. Now, Colin Pitchfork, the rapist and murderer who killed two schoolgirls in 1988, is staging a fresh bid for freedom, believe it or not, having won an appeal for yet another parole hearing. Barbara Ashworth, the mother of one of his victims, has expressed anger at the decision, saying she would throw away the key. One person who has campaigned relentlessly against the release of Colin Pitchfork is Conservative MP Alberto Costa. Welcome, Alberto. Nice to see you again. Pleasure to see you, Mike. I wish it was under better circumstances, well, but we seem, both of us, seem to be on this merry-go-round every time I come on to your excellent programme. Unfortunately, we're talking about the case of Colin Pitchfork. Mm. Uh, this is a never-ending saga. Well, it's becoming a saga, uh, Mike, and I know that um, a lot of your audience, and I'm sure you yourself would agree with me that there's something wrong with the parole mm. board when we can have these endless panel hearings that either release him or then recall him back into prison, then yeah. release him again or propose to release him. We're just going round and round in circles. But I tell you this, Mike, I'm not going to tire of raising this matter, not mm. least because, as you rightly said, there were two young women that were brutally raped and murdered by Pitchfork, Linda Mann and Don Ashworth. And we must never forget them and we must remember their families and friends who continue to suffer today. Exactly right. And they were only 15 years of age, and, and the two right. murders and, and rapes were quite far apart from one another. But you know what I didn't know until today, and I was listening to Talk TV, watching it uh, this afternoon, Peter Blexley was on, saying uh, that there's a hideous kind of record uh, in Pitchfork's history, whereby when uh, he was originally done for indecent exposure before he went on his kind of killing spree that he basically admitted to something like a 1,000 other offences of uh, sexual impropriety in one way or another. So, I mean, he's clearly a man um, who is not rehabilitatable, if you like. Well, whether he's been rehabilitated or not, um, we're changing the law about how we deal with sexual offences uh, and crimes of murder against women in particular. And I think that's right. Uh, whole life orders are being proposed. And what that basically means is if somebody like Pitchfork was to commit one of those brutal crimes today, mm. they would likely get a whole life order, meaning that they would spend most, if not all, of their natural life in prison, mm. regardless of whether they've been rehabilitated or not. The problem that we've got is these legacy cases 
which were judged under a different criminal uh, law sanctions regime. Mm. And so Pitchfork has the right to apply for parole, but he doesn't have the right to have parole. And let's remember that even if parole's granted, it's granted on licence. So in case anybody thinks that, oh, he served his time, he's got the right to, to come out, that's not the case. He's got the right to apply, but not the right yeah. to be granted it. Exactly. Um, but where we are today, Mike, is that let's remember in 2021, the parole board disgracefully released Colin Pitchfork. And within two months, he was recalled back into prison. And then last spring, once again, the parole board had a hearing. I was the first MP invited to observe that hearing. And what did they do? Once again, they decided to release him. Mm. I applied to the Secretary of State for Justice to ask the parole board to reconsider. He did that. The parole board appointed an independent panel. They agreed that the Secretary of State's grounds that it was irrational to release him were worth having a new panel. A new panel was constituted. And only two months ago, in December of last year, that new parole panel decided that it would be wrong to release Colin Pitchford. Mm. And let me tell you why. They decided this, among other things, because Colin Pitchford could not demonstrate to the parole panel that his attitude towards women had changed. So they rightly decided mm. not to release him. And what's Pitchfork done? He's put in an application saying, wait for it, that it would be irrational not to release him. Mm. You can't make this up. No. So I spoke to the Secretary of State for Justice yesterday about this urgently, and I'm in communications with his team. And I'm pleased that the government have made an announcement yesterday that the situation is unacceptable, that this is a flawed decision mm. on top of a flawed decision. Yeah. So I know that the Secretary of State for Justice is asking for an urgent meeting with the parole board. But let me repeat, Mike, I'm very grateful to you and other media outlets for allowing me to speak on this issue because we must never, ever stop our campaign to keep this dangerous man in the only place that he deserves to be, yeah. which is in a prison. And the last time that he was actually physically released, we discovered by accident almost that he'd been in a kind of open prison situation for a while and he'd been walking around freely uh, most days of the week and sort of returning to the prison in the evenings. And, of course, the reason um, that you and I think this guy should never be released, as well as, as all of the things you've said, is that when he was out, he was found hanging around a girl's school which was a breach of his parole conditions. And so, you know, you don't have to be a genius to work out what he was doing there and why he shouldn't be able to do it again. Well, all I can say is this, Mike, that I observed the parole board hearing. I signed a confidentiality agreement, rightly, and I won't disclose what I saw or heard at that parole board hearing last spring, but mm. what I will say is this. If you rape and murder anyone, let alone a young person, a woman you should be put in prison for the rest of your natural life. Yeah. And that's why I support the government's proposals for whole life orders. I think that's the right move. The challenge we've got is with these legacy cases. Mm. How do we deal with Pitchfork? Well, I've got a simple solution for the parole board. It's not obliged to grant parole to Pitchfork. It's obliged to listen to his application. And there's plenty of evidence that the parole board can consider and base its decision mm. on and I'm hoping that 
when they decide on this matter yet again, that they will say no to Mr Pitchfork. And finally this, Mike, the parole board rules themselves need to be changed. We cannot have a situation where a prisoner can limitly, limitlessly apply an appeal on top of an appeal. Mm. That just doesn't make sense. That's not right. No. So we need to change these rules, tweak them to ensure that there is only one internal review, not a succession, a limitless number of internal reviews. That cannot provide the certainty that the families and victims of Pitchfork deserve. No, absolutely right. Alberto, with you all the way, thank you so much for taking the time to thank talk you. to us. Alberto Costa, uh, MP, who, as I say, um, has fought absolutely relentlessly to make sure that the communities um, that were so badly affected by Pitchfork's acts are not subject to his release because, of course, as he said, one of the victim's mothers is still available. The family is still around. They don't want to see him out on the streets. Coming up to the end of the first hour on the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Next up, we look at the fallout of Paul Curry's anti-Semitic comedy set and the state of UK security. Do not go anywhere. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, the world enters a more dangerous period as global defence spending on everything from ammunition to nuclear weapons jumps to a record £1.7 trillion a year. Planned cuts to NHS funding could pay for 32 million GP appointments, that's according to the Liberal Democrats, and the crisis in the Middle East is coming for your cuppa. There's a nationwide shortage of black tea linked to Houthi attacks on ships in the Red Sea. 
Now, it's been well over 24 hours since we all heard about a vile incident at a theatre in London where a member of the audience was hounded out and abused by a so-called comedian. It won't surprise anyone to know, of course, that the audience member happened to be Jewish. And his crime? He didn't stand up and applaud when Paul Curry waved two flags on stage, one from Ukraine and the other from Palestine. And he had his own reasons for not doing so. But rather than accept that not everyone agreed with him, Curry went into a deranged attack on the man, telling him uh, to get the out of my theatre. Get out, get the out of my theatre. Uh, unbelievable stuff. More um, abuse then followed. He then led the crowd in a chant of free Palestine, while Lyav Etan and his friend tried to make their escape past the baying mob. Etan later said the whole incident was frightening. As he tried to walk out past Curry, he said, I was quite afraid that he'd throw a punch because he was still cursing and shouting. The incredible scenes were played out at the Soho Theatre, which has already apologised. And it may well be that the police will be investigating the incident. But surely what should be happening is that we should be hearing from Mr Curry, who's a Northern Irish comedian, who it has been discovered has taken part in several pro-Palestine marches and is an unavowed supporter of the cause. You can see him there. So far, so unfunny, right? The theatre issued a statement apologising and saying, it is important to us that Soho Theatre is a welcoming and inclusive place for all. But the only mention of what happened from the odious curry is a posting from an audience member who was at the show on his Instagram. Thanks, Paul Curry, for an amazing show on Saturday and for unapologetically calling for a ceasefire now, reads the comment. So apparently not only has Curry not apologised, but he is quite happy to stand by what he did. In other words, hounding Jewish people out of a theatre in the centre of London has become par for the course in 2024. How utterly, utterly ghastly. The show is called Stum, and it's described on the theatre website as a unique, surrealist, dada, punk, clown, non-verbal experience. Well, it's one thing to deride an audience. It's sometimes even funny when clever comedians insult their own audience. But this is something else. This is clearly intimidation of someone because of their beliefs and because they didn't agree. And it's just the latest in a very ugly development that is making this country less and less like a place the tolerant, ordinary folk will want to live in. Curry should be ashamed of himself, and we're not going to let this story go away, because tomorrow, Liav Inat, the man who was harassed out of the theatre, will join me in the studio to discuss his ordeal. So we'll look forward to seeing him tomorrow night. We'll get a flavour of exactly what actually happened. But let's talk uh, about our armed forces, because the military balance is an annual assessment of military capabilities and defence economics worldwide. The 2024 edition revealed global defence expenditure has jumped up by 9% to $1.7 trillion. You've got international bad guys like Russia allocating 30% of its annual expenditure to defence, and China's rapidly upgrading its nuclear arsenal too. So is it now... A dangerous time to be alive. Some people think so. Joining me to discuss this and much, much more is former British Army Colonel uh, Richard Kemp. Richard, a very good evening to you. Welcome, very, uh, welcome to the Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. I mean, it sort of does feel like we're living through quite a dangerous period. And I speak, as I'm sure you do, as somebody who kind of lived through the IRA bombing in the 70s and, you know, the, uh, the Falklands War, the Gulf War, the, the war in Bosnia you know, former Yugoslavia, you know, it seems to be on a kind of knife edge now more than I can ever remember it. Yeah, I would say this is probably one of the most dangerous times 
in our history since the Second World War. Yeah. Um, with with genuine threats, of course, we've seen unfolding in Europe from from Russia, uh, threats around the globe, including again in Europe from China, not necessarily direct military threats, but certainly threats of espionage and uh, 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 subversion, and also from Iran, and and that does include not not just subversive threats uh, and espionage, but it also includes uh, attempted assassinations with. Iranian-sponsored terror cells all around Europe, and not just around Europe, but around the world. Um, on, on top of that, you had, of course, Iran is is basically the sponsor primarily of Shia Islamic Jihad, uh, whereas also there's then the uh, the Sunni Islamic Jihad, which has died down to an extent since the demise, or at least partial demise, of the Islamic State, but is still with us and is mm. still a a real threat to us. Yes. And, I mean, the most recent incursion, I suppose, from, from, from our side, if you like, was the US bombing um, sort of 85 different targets in Syria and in Iraq, which were supposedly linked with some of these Iranian-backed disparate groups. Has there been any kind of response to that or any retaliation from, from the Iranians? I know they keep saying nothing to do with us, Gov, but, I mean, has anything happened? Well, the Iranians, uh, Iranians don't tend to carry out direct action themselves, they tend to do it through a, a network of proxies that they have throughout the Middle East and elsewhere in the world. Um, and and they, they have, in fact, carried out attacks against US forces since those retaliatory attacks by the Americans. And of course, we've got also Iranian-sponsored attacks con constantly ongoing in the Red Sea against shipping there. Yeah. Uh, and of course, against Israel, both in Gaza and in um, from Lebanon and from Syria. So. The, the Iranian the Iranians are definitely rampant, uh, although not not uh, directly and very often trying to deny it. But there's no getting away from who's behind these attacks. Mm. And I mean, without wishing to to alarm anybody, because that's not really what, what I want to do at all. But you know, we had stories uh, recently that in London there were worries that some Iranian dissidents might be uh, targeted by uh, Iranian, the Iranian regime in one way, shape or form. Um, and also the fact that, you know, we do now have a very disparate um, kind of world where there are people living in this country who might have, um, you know, shall we say, less than friendly thoughts about our country. Uh, same goes for France, same goes for most of Europe. Um, are you surprised that there hasn't been anything sort of on a terror-type basis, really, since all of this started in Gaza? Well, I think I think there. Have, uh, I don't know from first-hand experience, but I'm pretty sure there have been a number of plots that have been um, prevented by our security service. And of course, you know, for every terrorist attack that succeeds against our country, there are many, many that don't succeed because they are prevented from happening. And some of them we hear about, some of them we never hear about. Mm. But um, I think you know, not only are the Iranian proxies that you mentioned looking at targeting. Iranian dissidents in our country, they're also looking at targeting Jews in our country. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned just now the, the attacks on Jews from, uh, it, sorry, the attack on a Jew in, in Soho Theatre. Yeah. This is just one of numerous incidents and, and attempts to intimidate Jews in the UK, much of which has sponsorship from Iran, either directly or indirectly. Well, that's so right. So it's, it's, yeah, and, and, and equally from Russia as well, I have to say, that the, there's Russian money behind mm. some of these anti-Semitic attacks in the UK as well. Yeah. I read a fascinating piece, actually, at the weekend by Matthew Said in the Sunday Times, who talked about the sort of importance of Ukraine to Russia and to Vladimir Putin, 
And, you know, rather than, you know, him spouting on about the historical context of why they want to occupy a certain part of Ukraine because they've always been uh, properly, you know, Russian in that part of Ukraine. But it was more about the actual mineral rights and the mineral wealth that Ukraine has. And it seems to have an awful lot of mineral wealth. And so presumably if Russia has got its hands on that, that will give it even more ability, if you like, to, to, to produce even more and bigger weapons. Yeah, of course it will, absolutely. But but Russia, I don't think that's Russia's primary objective because Russia also has immense mineral wealth in its own country. It yeah. will, of course, it would boost it. But I think the main reason for Russian aggression, um, you know, apart from from Putin's desire to to essentially recreate the some form of Soviet of Russian Empire, not necessarily in Soviet style, maybe more of Tsarist-style empire. I think he sees himself as more of uh, a, a modern-day Tsar. Um, but, but apart from that, his primary objective is to drive down NATO, is to push against NATO, mm. and particularly the United States. And uh, aggression in Europe, ag aggression against Ukraine, rather, is, is a tool to do that. And one of the reasons, actually, one of his fears is that Ukraine has been... A, Ukraine is far from a perfect country, as we all know. Mm. But Ukraine has been veering further and further towards Europe and the establishment of a, of a European-style democracy, which to an extent already exists. Yeah. And that's a great fear for Putin because he, the last thing he needs is a, a, a flourishing, prosperous European democracy on his border, mm. which, which will cause some of his population to wonder why they continue to descend in terms of prosperity and freedom under his rule. And, and, and could maybe potentially, you know, maybe not in the immediate term, but in the long term, could destabilise Russia. Yeah. Now, let's go back to the Red Sea. The Houthis um, have been a bit quiet lately, I suppose you might say, but one of the things that's now being said to be affected um, is not just the shipping lanes themselves, but the supply of tea, for heaven's sake. I mean, now, we know that tea can cause wars in our history, so what's this all about? <laughs> yeah, well... I don't, I don't know myself about the, the shortage of tea supply, but I do know that the, 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 the long-term now Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea is causing very significant disruption to global trade and yeah. uh, you know, pushing up prices is forcing ships to go round the Horn of Africa, um, which cost vast amounts of money more than going up through the Suez Canal. Um, and, and, and I think that's a, a weapon that, the Houthis or the Iranians with under, uh, who control the Houthis to a large extent will continue to try and wield. And unless something very serious is done about that, it will continue. And so far, we haven't been acting very seriously. The US have been um, carrying out a series of airstrikes, many of which are telegraphed in advance to give the uh, Houthis a chance to, uh, to clear the areas that they're targeting. Mm. Um, and Britain has made a contribution. It, yes, it's, it's a much bigger contribution than any other country apart from the US who are seen to be afraid of engaging the Houthis. But nevertheless, it's still relatively minor. And partly that's because we have to fly from Cyprus to the Red Sea, which is thousands of miles away, mm. um, when we could actually be more effective. And, and, and it means you have relatively light bomb loads on the aircraft. We could be much more effective. We deployed... Um, one of our aircraft carriers into the Red Sea, but we don't seem to be even capable now of deploying a single aircraft carrier out of the two that we mm. theoretically have available. 
Right, and that's the problem. If you've only got two, you know, sparing one is a, is a very big deal. Let me ask you about David Cameron, Lord Cameron, um, who's been urging Israel to think seriously before uh, taking any further action in Rafa. We saw Joe Biden last night uh, making an appeal for the release of the hostages, but also sort of hinting that there was quite a, a good conversation going on uh, with Qatar uh, about a possible <coughs> ceasefire, some kind of, you know, relaxation and, and halting. Uh, of uh, of the of the of the sort of the fighting. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think. Um, obviously, it's. A, I, I'm in Israel at the moment, and it's a major issue here. There's the hostages, uh, and, and clearly, the, Israel is going to do anything it can within reason to get its hostages back, and that might include a, a relatively limited ceasefire. I think anything more than a short-term ceasefire could be hugely problematic for Israel's primary objective of destroying Hamas. Mm. But Lord Cameron has, uh, you know, you quoted him, he's, he's telling Israel to think carefully before they take action. What, who does he think he's talking to? Yeah, is, is he a schoolmaster talking to a disobedient schoolboy? These people are professionals at warfare, much more than he's ever been, mm. and they don't need him to tell them to think carefully. They're already thinking very carefully. They know the consequences. They know how important it is. They're doing all they can, as they've done throughout this war so far, to minimise civilian casualties, although there have been very many. They've worked hard to try and minimise them, and they'll certainly do the same thing before they go into Rafa, whatever Lord Cameron, whatever advice Lord Cameron may or may not give them. Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right. Totally agree with you. Same goes for America, in a way. You know, it's not really any of their business how Israel decides to deal with Hamas, given what they've done, they've done before. Colonel Richard Kemp, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed reporting into us there from Tel Aviv uh, in Israel, where, of course, things are still very, very dangerous indeed. Now, um, if you're not already aware, today happens to be Pancake Day, which is a day that involves a lot of flipping. So how about this? Something Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer is not averse to, as we've discussed earlier on the programme. So in the spirit of the day, let's look back on some of Sir Keir's Greatest flips. His latest one was with his own Rochdale by-election candidate, Azar Ali, who became embroiled in an anti-Semitism row, leading old Starmer to drop him. But in 2021, Sakir dropped Angela Rayner as party chair, only then to bring her back with a plethora of roles, deputy leader amongst them, following a backlash from the party. But there's more. When he ran for the Labour leadership, Starmer said he would bring back services such as rail, mail, energy and water into public ownership. Despite the fact he says he's still open to rail, in July 2022, his shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeve said Labour had ditched its commitment to nationalisation. Oh dear. Starmer had said that his party would work shoulder to shoulder with the trade unions. But when strikes hit the UK, he ordered his shadow cabinet not to appear on the picket lines even if firing his shadow rail minister for doing so. But even then, Keir had originally said he was set to abolish universal credit. Then it was to reform it. And then John Ashworth said the party agreed with its concept. Utter madness. And of course, who could possibly forget Starmer's former boss, good old Jeremy Corbyn, the man who Keir supported to be leader of this country, only then to boot him out of the party under yet another cloud of anti-Semitism. It seems the man's only consistency is his inconsistency. Now, coming back to Pancake Day, earlier today, our Talk TV correspondent Nick Ellaby went to Oni, who have been doing pancake flipping races ever since his 1400s. This is what he had to say. Hello, Mike. 
Real British heritage event here in Oney in Buckinghamshire. The Great Pancake Race has been run here since 1445, every Shrove Tuesday. That's before the War of the Roses, when Henry VI was on the throne. Now, this year's race, as every year, is a 414-yard dash from Oney Marketplace to here, the parish church of St Peter and St Paul. And only women are allowed to enter, and very traditional gear as well, skirts, pinnies and 1940s headscarves. That's because in 1948 the tradition was revived by a local vicar who found some photos in a cupboard here in the church and, and, and took to resurrect the race. And now the whole town and people, camera crews from other countries as well, come and, and check it all out. The race this year, very, very close. We had a photo finish, but Kaiser Larkas, local mum, won, I think, 63 seconds she got. And we spoke to her on the finish line. The girl who was first for the beginning, well, I don't lose, and she went really fast, and I just thought I'd have to beat her. thought that was tough. Are you a first-time winner. What does it mean? Uh, Second-time winner. Are you looking forward to becoming a three-time retiree? No, I think I'm going to do three-legged next year, because I think that's the way forward. Or get all my clients doing it and friends. And just and finally, retire. what was your time? Are you hoping to beat Kansas later? I will beat them. Following the race on Shrove Tuesday... Everyone pops into the local church to have their sins shriven as we head into Lent. I think I'm off to do the same. Shriven, eh? Good luck with that. Uh, now, as mentioned in that report, Oni has been in competition with a race in Kansas for the fastest winner each year. And we can reveal now that this year the town of Liberal in Kansas has come out on top. But uh, in the air tonight, it's the Independent Republic of Mike Graham also coming out on top. We're talking NHS football after the break as all the parties are kicking it around, saying what they'll do with it at the next election. Now they're adding AI into the mix. Goodness gracious me. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Cuts to NHS funding could pay for all GP appointments in England for almost 10 weeks, according to numbers crunched by the Lib Dems. Uh, if they have figures right, the NHS budget is set to decrease by £1.3 billion in real terms next year, which could pay for nearly 32 million appointments. It comes as freelance doctors who charge up to £850 a shift claim they can't get any work while you wait weeks for an appointment. And one person who will have a lot to say on this, is Dr Dean Eggie, an NHS GP. Dr Dean, uh, very, very good evening to you. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Um, I'm not sure I believe anything the Lib Dems say, but if you tell me uh, they've got it right, uh, is it a good idea? Um, if only that was the case. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> there are so many issues with this, really, there are. So um, NHS funding works in a really, really weird way. Um, it is right. Their calculations are probably right. There's the suggestion that... Um, a GP appointment, if you average it out about what comes into the NHS, it, it does level out to be somewhere between 30 and £42 per GP appointment. Of course, not everybody uses those appointments. Some do more than others. And if you were to reinvest the money that is taken out of the NHS and put it back into general practice, you could buy a lot more GP appointments. But the reality is that's not what's been happening for the past few years. In fact, as I'm going back through my numbers, I can look to about 14 years where investment in the NHS has not gone really towards general practice. 
So for around 2006, general practice received about 10% of the NHS budget to currently about 8% of the NHS budget at the moment. So whilst the government is very happy to invest in the NHS, it's not coming to general practice. And actually, uh, the Liberal Democrats never invested in general practice either. They cut general practice funding by 0.4% when they were part of the coalition. So I'd be interested to see if any of that comes to general practice. Yeah. So who makes that decision as to who uh, gets what money? How, how does the GP allocation work out and who and who says how much you get? So it's part of a national negotiation. Ultimately, this lies at the very top of government. We're talking the prime minister and the chancellor. And the chancellor will say, well, this is how much the NHS is going to get. And of course, then the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care will try to um, work with ministers to discuss how much of that is going to go to hospitals, how much of that is going to go to general practice. That will go through NHS England, who will then go into negotiation with various departments and then say, here is your budget. Here is what we ask of you. Go and get it done. It then gets devolved to general practice and we get about um, 120-ish pounds per patient per year as a set funding for all care that any patient could ever need. Mm. And that's a, probably a pretty good explanation of why it doesn't work, does it? Because you've taken more time um, to explain it than probably I would get uh, with a GP if I had an appointment tomorrow. Yeah, and actually it's even worse than that. I've tried to give you the simplified version. Yeah. The, the best analogy that I've ever been given is it's trying to paint your house with tester pots. And um, we GPs spend all of our time scrabbling for cash. And the good reason is simply because if we weren't scrabbling for cash, we couldn't afford to deliver a service. So most of my time is spent chasing money, not looking after patients. Yeah. So are you seeing fewer patients now, say, than you would have been, say, five, six years ago? Um, actually, no, I'm not seeing fewer patients. I'm seeing more patients. And um, I, I hesitate to say this. I'm very open with my patients about it. But the, the quality of care is going downhill. I have to see you faster. Your conditions are more complex. Medicine is more complex. So quite frankly, it's turning into a bit of a fast food way of medicine where it's fast, it's cheap, it's bite-sized, it's in and it's out, and I get through as many as I possibly can. So the quality of care has gone downhill and the volume has gone up. Right. And what do you make of some of Rishi Sunak's sort of suggestions and pronouncements that they're going to give more uh, work to pharmacies and they're going to give more ability to pharmacies to actually do more of GPs' work for them? One, I presume that hasn't really happened yet. And two, if it does happen, will it make any difference? Well, it's only just starting, so let's put this into context. General practice as a whole sees approximately one million patients per day in the NHS. The Pharmacy First scheme has started off so far seeing approximately 1,000 patients per day in the NHS. So it's absolutely small fry on the scale of things. But the whole world has a workforce crisis in healthcare at the moment, and England is no different. So somehow we have to do something different because there just aren't the GPs that there once was. So actually, throw loads and loads and loads of money at me. I'll buy all the GPs I want, but there still aren't enough of us. We need more people mm. other than just GPs. Yeah, right. And there's AI now being talked about as well. I mean, is there a potential for, for that helping out? Yeah, there really is. AI's got some really interesting concepts. Um, a lot of what we do takes a huge human burden of time and thought. 
if we can automate some of that and take out the human processes, first of all, we take out human error. Second, it frees my brain up to do other sorts of things that computers can't do. And often computers are faster at the jobs that they're very good at. So using AI for the right jobs can be absolutely transformational for the NHS. But let's not get carried away. It's not going to take doctors' jobs just yet. We still need plenty of doctors. Yeah. No, indeed. Would it be able to replicate the grumpy receptionist? That would be my question. <laughs> oh, would we ever want to replace them or replicate them? They're amazing. I have to well, point sometimes out... Sometimes they're amazing. <laughs> sometimes they're a pain in the neck. But there's a reason for that. And again, I won't go into that in too much length. But, um, you know, they're tired. They work extraordinarily hard. They're protecting the appointments for the patients who are really, really sick. And quite frankly, there just aren't enough appointments. So when you phone up in the morning and you're really ill and you're really annoyed, my receptionist is, is sad for you. They're upset for you. But there's nothing they can do. There's only one of me. There's only so many patients I can see. So they put up this wall of defence, both for their own personal moral injury and because quite frankly they hit a wall of abuse when people can't get seen rapidly yeah and what about these freelance kind of doctors for hire as it were 850 pounds um a shift who say they can't get any work what's that about is that because you can't afford to pay them yeah you've taken the answer from me i don't really need to answer that question there's loads and loads of work we need more doctors there's loads and loads of patients to be seen i just don't have the money to pay for doctors mm. what i do have this really weird and wonderful scheme where the government will give me a pot of funding that i can't spend but i've got to allocate on a healthcare worker instead of a doctor i can't get to really pick and choose who i spend it on there's this little list and I can spend it on them, but the money doesn't come directly to me. So I have no money to spend on doctors. And a lot of doctors tell me that it's not worth their while to work any more than they do as well. Like if they do a three-day week and then they try and add another day, sometimes it's better for them to go and work in a clinic because they'll get extra money for that. So their GP work is actually less kind of occupying for their week than it would be. Yeah, I think the real issue with working a five-day GP week, and this is going to sound very odd to a lot of people, is this concept of brain fatigue. So the way I think of it is a bit like dial-up internet back in the day. When you ran out of data, you just couldn't use the internet anymore. I want you to think of your doctor's brain a little bit like that. If I work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I have no more data for Thursday and Friday. I'm burnt out. I can't do that job anymore. And the way that that works is you literally can't think straight. You can't drive, you can't eat, you can't drink, you can't have a conversation. You're certainly not safe talking to patients. So actually, I would advocate that GPs generally work three days a week because that's usually full-time hours and it burns your brain out. Any well, I would accept dangerous. that as an argument if you weren't then doing anything else for the other two days. But if you're then going and working in a clinic and getting paid extra, then I'm sorry, you can't be that burnt out. Yeah, it depends what you mean by clinic. So I work five days a week. I work three days as a GP and two days doing other stuff. The other stuff is far easier than general practice and it's not life-threatening. So I can use my brain, I can use my time, but it's not necessarily going to lead to somebody's harm if I'm fatigued. It just might mean I get a number wrong in a box mm. and I can reassess that at a later date. Do you really want me sat in front of you making decisions about life and death when I'm tired? Wouldn't you rather me sat doing a different job? Well, I'm hoping most of the people coming to see you are not necessarily talking about life and death. They just want some pills to take away the pain. <laughs> oh, oh, Mike, if only general practice really was like that. So most people who come to me for pills for pain are um, thinking that it's very simple. My job is really not about coughs and colds and sore throats. My job is to find the needle in the haystack. You may come to me with what you perceive to be a sore throat, and I may try and treat you for your sore throat, but really what I'm looking for is that one in 10,000 cancer. 
I'm trying to find the one patient who's dying. I have to be on pinpoint perfection for every single patient. Mm. OK. Well, listen, it's fascinating. We'll have to do this again because there's a lot more that I'd want to ask you, but we're out of time. Dr Dean uh, Inkit, thank you very much indeed. So, matter of life and death when you go to the doctors. You might go because you think you've got a sore throat and, in fact, you might just be dying. Who can say? Uh, moving on now, though, the wonderful Meghan and Harry have found themselves dropping the word royal from their domain name. So if you want to hear the latest from the lovely couple instead of typing www.sussexroyal.com, you now just type sussex.com. Could this be a sign of the family rift expanding ever further? Back with me now, I'm delighted to say, uh, the panel are here, Ryan, Emma and Andrew. Um, this is my favourite bit of the show, obviously. <laughs> Harry and Meghan, um, or as they now call themselves, Prince Harry and Meghan. What's all that about? That's what it says well, on the I'm website. I'm also really interested, how did they buy Sussex.com? That's... Yeah, I mean, I've know? got a house in Sussex, I mean, right? Quite, I don't grant them the use of the say, name Sussex. But, but also, it's a county that's been around for, what, how many gazillions well, of years? Yeah. Yeah. And do you know what it also is? It's also now a catch-all, I think, trademark now yes. for um, English sparkling wine made in Sussex. Absolutely. It's actually called Sussex. She's also using her royal crest, which she was given on their marriage. Right. And there's been eyebrows raised in the palace about that. Uh, there's lots of bits of this website. If you go to it, mm. um, it's all sort of... They still have sussexroyal.com as part of it. Right, they have yeah. Archiewell as part of it. They have archetypes. They have all these different parts of their sort of brand. Mm. But they're on manoeuvres. Something is happening. Well, She's it, it just... redirects, doesn't it? From, yeah, From redirects. the old site. Yeah. The new I, I was checking it out, actually. I looked at wales.com, which obviously still looks for Wales. I looked at gloucester.com, which is about the Gloucester, Massachusetts. Uh, I looked at york.com, which yeah. is the leading heating and cooling industry website. You okay. see? So all of these things... Well, you're talking about money. I mean, a lot of these sites... So car.com, for example, was the most expensive website which changed places. Mm. The domain name was 872,000 right. million. Well, million I'm just, I mean, I'm amazed nobody had Sussex.com. Well, then they yeah. put this I think, website... I think the was... royal family acquired it some decades ago. OK. A number of years ago, yes. They set yeah, it up possibly. in... It was, the domain name was established in 1995. Okay. You wonder whether they had it or they just swooped in and... and yeah, it for their because own he own. was not the Duke of Sussex, presumably, when they bought no. the domain name. No. Maybe they should, maybe should send him a bill. It's very say, you know, clear that they are still using yeah. their royal branding to sell themselves. Mm. It's very, very clear that right. they still push themselves as that, otherwise they wouldn't still be using, you know, if they really wanted to leave. And it's all a bit sort of cloying, isn't it, as well? It's all it's about humanitarian the... works and... Uh, oh, there it is there. Is yep, a... she's but I'm puzzled a, by the... I, I, you a know... feminist and a, and, a, and a great... And he's right. a great humanitarian. Yes. Yeah. A, a military veteran. Celebrating the Invictus Games, which are brilliant. I always stand up for Harry and Meghan. They've got a little element of that. Invictus Games. Why can they not just call themselves Harry and Meghan, though? They don't want to be royal. They don't want to be part of the yes. family. Well, they said they, they did, but they, they do, and they wanted titles for their children. Right. But why call themselves Prince Harry? On you know what because is because the Americans love it, and it's making them a lot of money. Yeah, it's a brand. It's a very good brand, and mm. brands are very valuable. I'm told there's no mention of Netflix in this new website either, mm. which is another deal. Yeah. Because you do wonder if this is a headache that Prince King Charles doesn't actually want at the moment. Well, they, the trouble is they can't stay out of the limelight, can they? I mean, every time you hear them going, I don't odd. want my privacy invaded, they yeah. do something else which puts them back in it's the really limelight. It's really odd timing as well, isn't it, Mike? Yeah. If you think about the week or the couple of weeks that the royal family, the senior royals, have had yeah. in this country, then Harry coming over, all those questions about that visit, apparently he wouldn't... Yeah. It's been reported tonight that Prince Harry wouldn't be in the room with Camilla. Yes, but I suspected that was the case because some people were saying, oh, he had this meeting with, with his father yeah. and Camilla. And I was like, I, I'm pretty sure she wouldn't have been there. I and don't. she probably chose not to be rather than 
It was his choice. I don't think to the she book. wants to see little scrote, does she? You only go back to the book of how scathing he was at uh, yeah, He was horrible yeah. about her. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you can understand it. You know, his, his mother uh, was left by his father for another woman and, you know, some people don't get over that. Some people have grown up enough to get over it. He's obviously not grown up at all, has he? Yeah, but there's you being know. angry at your, at your father's new partner or old partner, new partner. But there's then making horrific, well, yeah, really horrible. But also, he's angry with everyone. People. I mean, he's angry with you know his the family. He's angry with the media. He's angry with you know anyone who says anything about him. He's just angry. It's his career to be really, really deeply unhappy and bitter and yeah. kind of yeah. I think he's forty this year, isn't he? Well, he's not he's young. Like, that's no, for sure. Like, I think he's coming on forty either this yeah. year or he's next year. So. Isn't that an age when you sort of get over all that stuff, or at least? He's, he's been over-therapied, in my view. I mean, he's just been yeah. sitting in too many Californian echo chambers, you know, telling everybody how terrible his life is. And the Americans are not buying it anymore. They're not just not interested. They're like, no. you, mate, mate, your life is not that bad. You're a prince. You've got a £30 million trust fund. You're married to a beautiful woman. You've got two nice kids. You live in a big mansion in, in Montecito, yeah. which looks like something out of a movie. And what's, you know, what's to be unhappy about? All and he can he think of doing is suing loads of people. Well, and, and he's winning some of those cases. I mean, I, I'm very yeah, but he's not winning the majority of them. Of them. Yeah. He's winning well, some, some bits of them, of them yes. you know. But in the end, he's, when is he going to stop? I, I think the interesting thing, Mike, and we always discuss how Harry and Meghan, that sort of stuff. The interesting thing is always some terrible stuff and some good stuff. And people forget some of the good stuff. I think look at things like the Invictus Games, I think, is brilliant. And he should absolutely be applauded for that. I think understanding as a son trying to see his father for in the schedule, I think they talked about 30 minutes is what he got with him. He probably wants to see him alone. I get that bit. And you work on that sort of basis. And Charles had to change his schedule just to fit in. And I think Charles, to his credit, was still working tremendously hard and had to juggle it around on that sort of premise. So yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's as good a, as well as the bad as Father, yeah, you would do that, of course. But, but you know, his relationship with his, with his brothers, knackered, you know, that's not telling back. thing that they didn't even meet when he was no. last, last over. No. Not even gave him the time of day. Right. And it's incredible. The cousins have never... I don't think they, they rarely met, or they may have met once Well, I mean, twice. I don't think... Um, and I there's... don't think that was the warmest meeting between no. Harry and Charles. I no. mean, look, he saw him for whatever... Whether it was 30 minutes, minutes or 17 40 minutes. Or yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. think Charles particularly wanted him leaping on a plane and rushing no. over. Well, in fact, quite the reverse. We were told that, you know, he did, they would have said, look, don't don't worry about it, you know, it's fine. About it, Come but I wanted time. to tell you in person, yeah. yeah. And then they didn't meet again, so I don't actually think that that was... You know, I think that was probably Harry being a bit dramatic... Um, wanting to make a show of yeah. leaping on a plane and rushing over. Then he went back... Um, and, went straight uh, to Las Vegas, didn't to, he? To, to host an award yeah. for NFL Honours thing. Know. So, you know... Unbelievable. It's all about currency, isn't it? Part. They just have to make themselves... Yeah, that's just what I mean. They have to, they just have, up that link they have with to the keep Royals. They've seen. refreshed that link, Yeah, because it's like ka time, isn't it? Yeah. Meanwhile, Charles the King uh, was spotted out and about today. Um, he came back to London, I think, for some what we believe to be some treatment. Yeah. Um, and he looks okay. I mean, it's difficult to 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 understand how that must be for him because I mean, we know him to be a very busy individual. He likes to work. He must hate it. Also, Anyone who likes to work who can't work, he must be like. But also, things like chemo affect people very differently. Mm. I remember my father having chemo for prostate cancer. Yeah. And there were times after a course of treatment when he felt fine. Yeah. And then there were times when you'd feel absolutely knackered and very sick. So yeah. I think you know it's too early to say, but it's interesting they talked about pioneering treatment. Yes. Which people are saying may suggest immunotherapy. Yeah. So, I mean, he's obviously getting the very, very oh, best. Of course, yeah. he absolute will be. best treatment. And he's the sort of guy who might like a bit of experimental, you know, <laughs> oh, oh, definitely. kind of slightly holistic medicine. Plants mixed in, maybe. Yeah.
Absolutely yeah. right. Oh, I bet he's got his holistic doctors on there. Uh, absolutely. But to his credit, he's talking about it as a result of him talking about yeah, when he, he had the, the prostate examination. The, the calls went through the roof, didn't they? Lots they of did. people turned around. But people have now been critical, as of course they would be, because yeah. he hasn't said what this is. And Give the guy some privacy. I'm not one of those. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't think he needs to say it. They've gone as far as they can. I think. Mm. It's, yeah, I think it's, it's very. It's very difficult. Same with Kate. I think it's absolutely her right to keep yeah. a gynecological no, totally. or an abdominal or a something issue I, private. Yeah. And, and the person for me, I have no Sarah Ferguson. I mean, to her credit, she's been out and, and about talking about mm. that sort of side as well. So I think more people in the public eye who speak about these things, the better. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, now, there's one particular story I want to talk to you about, and it's a, uh, something I read today about the. Birth rate in this country, which is now so low yes. that it has not been as low as this since 2002. Yes. And I, in 2022, which is the last figures that came out, around about 600,000 babies were born in England and Wales, right? And it just struck me, and this is just the point of conversation, that's half the amount of people who came here last year legally migrating to this country, yeah. either to work uh, or to uh, supposedly be a student. 1.2 million in, yes. 600,000 born. Right. The, the population is going up by a factor of 200% with foreigners. Yeah. I, I, can, is, I can totally believe this. I, I, when, when I was applying for, for my children for, for schools, um, when my uh, eldest, back in 2014, we got the very last place yeah. in, the, in the catchment area, as it were. Yeah. Two years later... Catch, there's no problem with the catchment areas because people there's not there aren't the same number of births happening. Right. Yeah. Also, interesting. You know what? I'm applying for primary schools and we're finding exactly the same thing. Schools really? are yeah. closing, and when we're in central yeah. London, I know that's the case are in London. Closing yeah. because they simply can't get the numbers. Right. A lot of people have moved out because of the pandemic. They've moved out of London, right. but people are not being born like little ones. Yes. yes. And but, so we're just diluting. And there are also. several problems with this. It seems to me because if you don't continue to have, um, you know, a healthy birth rate. Mm then you don't have people growing up and going to work and paying for the people yeah, who no, are the older people. I think a lot of it comes down to, as well, you have people who work in the public sector, cannot afford to live in central London or around mm. London, so they're moving further and further out. And it just becomes more and more but difficult it, it, to, but this, to find this year, the jobs. Yeah. This year is the year of the dragon, where population traditionally, especially in China, increases dramatically. Yeah. It's very lucky to have a dragon baby. Um, so it happens every 12 years. So, so on that sort of basis, mm. but there will be a population spread. But similarly to this particular statistic coming out today, it was also, uh, there was a study done, um, and about a third of current teenage girls don't want to have children. Right. Yeah, and I with a variety of reasons, either climate change, they don't okay. want to bring children into the world. I wish they would stop um, saying that. But they're also but saying, are... you know, they're worried about the future, you know, yeah. there's no security. Well, it's they expensive can't to have children as well. Yeah. I mean, well, tell me about it. But you know, there are other it doesn't reasons. get any cheaper either when they grow up, <laughs> trust me. You know. I think there are other reasons as well. I think the cost of housing means that if you're living, if you're in your 20s and 30s, and you're living at home, yeah. you can't, you know, get married to your boyfriend and have a baby. You just can't do the normal things mm. that people did in their 20s and 30s. So yeah. people are just... But also, I think women feel more confident to say, like me, one yeah. and done, like one is yeah. enough, whereas people used to just... Yeah, you know, I mean, my, both my parents came from families of, like, seven or eight children. Yeah, eight, yeah. You know? um, and I had all these uncles and aunts, you know. Yeah. That doesn't really happen anymore, you know. Let's talk about a magic roundabout, or perhaps not so magic. Apparently, <laughs> £20 billion have been spent on this roundabout. I mean, people say we haven't got enough money in this country, but they right. spend money on some of the most ridiculous things. This roundabout, apparently, has got so many different road markings that it doesn't make any sense. Um, I, don't know whether, I don't know whether you've been anywhere near this roundabout, but, I mean... They do do some very odd things. In they this do, right? I live off just off Old Street roundabout. Mm. Oh yeah, right. They've been. They made a right on... mess of that. Oh right, they really have. And now it's not a roundabout anymore. Right. It's a it's half out. Yeah. 
So what it goes in two it, directions. They did the same two, thing. Right, it goes in two directions, <laughs> yeah. but also it's not a roundabout. So it's sort of, it's been cut off mm. by the, the underground on yeah. one side. So you go round it and then there are things coming at you. Right. Oh, I nearly fell over. There are things coming yeah. at you from the other way. Well, and I've, then yeah, they cross. Is, I mean, I, cross, don't like, get me onto my hobby this horse. This has taken them about 15 yeah. years to do. The same, they've done the same at Elephant Castle. Yeah, yeah. Right? It used to be just a roundabout and there's now this sort of mishmash of nonsense. Yes. You know, when you're driving at night now. It's so terrifying. Driving in it, you have no idea what you're doing, no, no idea where you're going. You know, there's lights for cyclists. That's even less reassuring. You know, there's... Yeah. There's, cyclist, there's people crossing that way, that... there's cyclists coming the opposite yeah. way up the road. You're going, what the hell am I doing? Have you ever I been, assumed been... the drivers knew what was happening. No. No, the drivers don't know either. You don't. That's have even you... more scary. Have you ever been to Hemel Hempstead? There's a place called the Magic Roundabout. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, yeah. there's a big roundabout in the middle. Then there's about nine or ten yeah. minor roundabouts. There's one of those in Swindon as well, which is actually not with any structure, but it's right. those mini roundabouts. But there's about six of them. And you kind of drive in, you know, kind of shaped like a pretzel. And you know what it is? You're dependent on traffic lights. Effectively, someone has programmed it all. You're, you're really dependent on the traffic lights just stopping people, just all driving into each other. But yeah. that's, that's the worrying quote. They're turning around and saying they don't understand it. So the people interviewed about this particular roundabout mm. say, it makes no sense. Yeah. I, I would be interested to see what the stats are on, on accidents. Uh, yeah. As a cyclist, I mean, it's, it's horrendous it's so anyways, scary. There's a story, Very dangerous. There's a story yeah. in the papers today about a young couple who died because they couldn't read the road, road signs. They do wonder whether, you know, these sort of roundabouts... I got a, t I got a ticket for being in a bus lane, right? Over, right. over Christmas, um, because I was behind this bus, and unbeknownst to me, they'd redesigned this road. Yes. And apparently I was supposed to go to the right around a huge big plant pot, which looked <laughs> like it was the opposite <laughs> side of the road. Oh. And I thought, well, I'm not, I'm just staying behind the bus. And I couldn't see pot. any signs that said it was a bus lane, so I just carried on I... behind the bus. And I got a ticket for something like 65 quid. Good. And it's crazy because they're now expanding things like cycle lanes mm. uh, and stuff like that. So the Marlebone Road, which is not too far from Regent's Park where I am, same sort of thing. But everything just basically came to a halt as a result of it because the yeah. cycle lanes were so enormous. I know. And, and it's Unbelievable. terrible on that sort of basis. It is. Absolutely ridiculous. But we've got more to do. Uh, we're about to do it. This is the bulldozing independent Republican microwave. Coming up next, the armed forces continuing to pile money into woke diversity policies. And we'll be delving into tomorrow's news as well. This is Talk TV. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for this. The world of woke. Now, it was only yesterday that we learned the woke takeover of our armed forces is so alarming that Grant Chaps, the Secretary of State uh, for Defence, is ordering a review of the extremist cultures that have seemingly developed in recent years. Today we can reveal that the situation is even worse than we feared because a Freedom of Information request has revealed that spending in the armed forces on diversity and inclusion personnel has doubled to nearly two million quid over the past five years. And what is it that you think these jobs are exactly? Is there an advisor for all infantry soldiers to learn how to kill without prejudice? They should already know how to do that. What about RAF pilots who need to be hired on the basis of the colour of their skin? Oh, sorry, they've already had to pay out some compensation over that ludicrous idea. I know. How about a special transgender unit dedicated to logistics cops? No, they could help to build bridges, literally. Um, but you might think I'm being a bit frivolous with those suggestions. This, however, is a woke culture problem, and it's very serious. Some former senior military officers are so alarmed at what's happening, they sent an open letter to Grant Chaps decrying the Army's race action plan. They described it as wicked and warned that it was nothing short of dangerous madness. 
The number of people now working in the armed forces solely on diversity and inclusion has more than doubled from 2019 to last year. But no one knows for sure what they're all actually doing. And the salaries have cost the taxpayer over £7 million in five years. And that is a lot of money in anyone's language. A report last December from the National Audit Office found that the armed forces face a £17 billion shortfall in equipment funding over the next decade. And with the world becoming an ever more dangerous place, what we're going to need are more soldiers, not more diversity coordinators. The woke culture in the civil service has reached ridiculous proportions and no-one sensible actually cares about how inclusive it all is. It's time to wake up, people. It's time to change the record because we can't have our defences weakened by the world of woke. The world of woke. Now, it's time to have a look at what's going on in tomorrow's papers. Ryan, good story here about a cop killer finally in the dock 18 years on. You know a bit about this. I remember covering this story um, a long time ago, back in 2005, dispatched up to, uh, to Bradford uh -huh. to cover this. But this is the case of um, a man who um, the court, the prosecutors would say, has evaded justice for the last 18 years. Now, he's facing um, murder charges um, yeah. uh, for, for the murder of PC Sharon... Uh, Beshinevsky, and he, he's in court um, at the moment. Um, it was again, it happened a long time ago. He was extradited from Pakistan right. in April last year. That's right. This has been a, a big, long, long, sort of drawn out case yeah. to try and get him back to this country. Right. And uh, now he's, he's now in court. And um, this, I don't know how long this trial will go on for, but uh, he, he denies murder and firearms offences. And this, this case will probably go on for several weeks indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And right. it's important to say, I mean, it's obviously innocent until proven guilty. Absolutely. And whilst they call him cop absolutely. killer, in inverted commas, he, he will stand. Well, he's accused of being a cop killer. Exactly. We I think say that, that. that's the way to do that, yeah. Absolutely right. Now, one for the uh, Valentine's Day <laughs> crowd. <laughs> glorious story. Brilliant but... story. This love sickness. <laughs> it's almost one in four Brits have been clinically lovesick, suffering physical illness due to a broken heart. Now, there are some people who don't believe that there is such a thing as a broken heart, but I, I'm not so sure. I think people... I mean, I've known people who have become sort of lovesick when they've broken up with people. Uh, absolutely. The, the, the mental know? health and the strain on your physical health are, are interrelated. And yeah. you're talking about heart palpitations and so on and so forth as a result of it. And it's incredibly stressful. Mm. Uh, so you look at that sort of stuff. So I'm not surprised by these statistics. And I think on the eve of Valentine's Day, it's important to call it out. There are people who will be sitting there all alone with their meal for one. Yeah. Uh, and quite sad at all these sort of moments. I you don't know. know. I mean... You with elderly people, don't you? If, you know, uh, yes. Say yeah. elderly people in their if probably you, 70s, If the husband 80s, dies yeah. and the wife yeah. dies... Yeah, almost... I'm not saying the same day, but certainly within mm. a few weeks or so. Yeah. Although you'd probably be more lonely if you hadn't had break, broken up with somebody than if you had, wouldn't you? I mean, if oh, you yeah, I, I think, yes. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with the meal for one and being on your own on Valentine's Day, but I definitely I think... would never, ever go out on Valentine's Day. I mean, no. it's such a waste I mean, of time. most people avoid it like the plague. Yeah. And, you know, most people think that tomorrow is just a commercial kind of... Yeah. Load of nonsense, think... apart from, I think, the man next to me who's been buying his wife a Valentine's Day card at a petrol station. It was a petrol uh, station. It was a... <laughs> I've got him in a load of trouble <laughs> now. It's a, it's a Westminster tube. They, do, they sell cards there. Yeah, that's fair enough. Oh, that's I mean, you're a busy guy. Right. Tesco. You're a busy guy. There is a card shop just over the road there, no, by the way. Good. Well, what I love I as well is what we talked about AI a bit earlier, mm. that actually the rise in companionship as a result of artificial intelligence is yeah. the biggest thing. Elon Musk spoke about it last year when, when he was over here for the safety summit, uh, the AI safety summit, saying that's going to be one of the biggest areas. For people who are lonely 
having these AI companions. That's only sort of one step up from a sex dog. You, well, you call it companionship. They are companionship because they will they will know you better. You can't fall in love. You can't ever. fall in love with an oh, AI. Oh, people do no, fall in love. Oh, the they have AI thing. girlfriends. This is they the have saddest sort of thing that Gen Z it's reported yeah. are looking for friends online. Yeah, right. Because they do not know how to look up from the screen. Mm. They do not know how to make eye contact. Right. Or Initiate friendships or relationships, and with then people. they become imp imp impossible to actually have a relationship with because, because they, they don't understand real life yeah. or intimacy or any kind yeah. of anything about physical or Emotions, kind of space yeah. or contact or anything. Mm. Like but that. there's a wonderful TV series. No, which we've has been created a in very Japan, sad world in Japan called Love by AI, which is exactly that. Which will give you things to say. They'll find your ideal partner and, and some sort of likes. That's hopeless, isn't it? Why I, do you think <laughs> Japanese young men like rent girlfriends <laughs> online yeah, right. because they just have no clue about right. how it actually works. And they buy works. underwear in machines. You walk into a bar, you smile at someone, and you yeah. ask them if you can buy them a drink, and then you touch their bottom and all the things you're not meant to do. That's not. And then the police know. arrive and you get dragged off <laughs> yeah, to a cult in the local, <laughs> local police station. <laughs> Let's do a bit of Operation Stop Vlad. This is a big uh. NATO drill that's going on. It's going on, it started, I think, um, this week and it's going to go on all the way through March. And it's um, in the wake of some of the stuff that Donald Trump's been Donald saying. Trump, yeah. And in the wake of some countries now joining NATO. I mean, it's quite interesting. But I'm pretty sure I saw a picture of one of our aircraft carriers sailing off. To the sort of Norwegian Sea, which is where they're, they're starting to do it. Yeah, yeah. Desert um, rats. And apparently there's no actual planes on it at all. No, no, exactly. It's, like, it's like having a shopping bag, but you don't get the shopping. No. I mean, it, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Because yeah. they had all that. That was the report. They couldn't afford to put the, the aircraft on top of this aircraft carrier. Yeah. Is that meant to make Putin quake in his boots? Yes. That well, are empty for aircraft carriers. For his next Tucker Carlson symbolically interview, taking yeah. off. I don't think anybody is going to make uh, Vladimir Putin quake I, I in his boots. I think that's a fair comment. The Americans have upped their money today. Well, in fact, the Senate has actually mm. approved um, yes, 90-odd billion dollars, but actually needs to get through the House of Representatives. Right. So it's, it's They're a saying, good sign. Yeah, it is a good sign. We'll see what happens. Um, and the Sunfront page, which we don't have right in front of us, but I can show you, uh, is all about uh, Steve Wright um, and his um, yeah. rather unfortunate death that we announced earlier on in the show, Radio Wonder, which is a pretty uh, decent headline. Yeah. Um, it'll yeah. be sadly missed, I think, oh, totally. by and that, that, many that, people that I know. Yeah, listen to it in the, after, mm. you know, in the afternoons when it was on Radio 2 and yeah. Radio 1 before that and that farewell music that you know I can hear in my head right you, now. Yeah, I mean, we played a little clip of his voice and you just instantly recognise it. And it's his voice, it. isn't it? Yeah. When, I, when I've seen lots of pictures of him this evening, I'm not so familiar with him as he was recently. No. But the voice instantly takes You immediately that, know that, exactly that it's him. And his wonderful voice sense of humour. He also did a programme with my good yeah. friend Mike Reed. It used to be really there you go. Right. We're out of Together. time, I'm afraid. Thank you very much indeed to all of you. Uh, that's all from me. You have been watching, of course, The Independent Republic, Mike Graham. I'll be back at 8pm tomorrow night, only on Talk TV. Don't miss it. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.